casting a wide net to bring both children, parents, and even grandparents into the story. It's humorous, entertaining, and the plot beautifully develops throughout each scene. Yet the very end of the movie does something that no one was expecting. When the animated story ends, the movie actually doesn't end. It doesn't cut to the credits. No, it zooms out to show a father and a son talking beside this massive Lego city, only to find out that the whole story was just a microcosm of their relationship. There was a real family story behind the whole plot, and you only realize that at the end of the movie. Yes, the story's great, but you find out at the end that there was so much more going on. And this, in some ways, the book of Ruth to a T. We see this glorious story of Naomi and Ruth search for a redeemer in Boaz. Yet when we see the conclusion of the story, we realize that there was so much more going on. And so we know that God is working behind the scenes, yet we are concluding this book this morning to find out exactly what he's doing through the lives of Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz. So turn with me to Ruth 3 through 4. We all know where the book of Ruth is because we just heard it. So So turn with me to Ruth 3 through 4. And while you're turning there, I wanted to give us a quick reminder of where we are in the account. Ruth takes place during the time of the judges where there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Ruth opens up with great tragedy as Naomi was left without a husband, without her sons, which means she was left without protection, without provision, and ultimately without a child to carry on her inheritance. Nevertheless, to Naomi's surprise, God actually begins to use Ruth, a Moabite, a foreigner, as a conduit to bring her blessing. This happens upon the chance meeting of Boaz, a noble man who showed incredible hesed kindness to Naomi and Ruth in the way that he both protected and provided for them. The fullness that Naomi once had seems to be partially returning to her, yet in her mind, there's still one thing missing, a redeemer for her and Ruth that will bring complete protection, complete provision, and a child to carry on her inheritance. Chapter 2 ends with the words, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Now, Boaz could be that redeemer, yet he obviously hasn't made the move because Ruth is still living with Naomi. And so this brings us to the beginning of chapter 3, where we see Naomi begin to concoct a seemingly very unorthodox plan as she thinks this will speed up her one last hope for Ruth. And so, this morning, I have two points that will capture both of the chapters that we're in. We'll see in chapter 3, a Redeemer requested, and then we'll see in chapter 4, a Redeemer received. So those that are note-takers, we'll see in chapter 3, a Redeemer requested, and then in chapter 4, we will see a Redeemer received. I'm not going to read the whole passage um, in one sitting, but I will be working through most of it as we go through. But I would like to read a portion of it. So if you're able, please stand to your feet for the reading of God's word, Ruth 3, 5 through 13. So Ruth said to her, I will do everything you say. 
She went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law had charged her to do. After Boaz ate, drank, and was in good spirits, he went to lie down at the end of the pile of barley. And she came secretly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. At midnight, Boaz was startled, turned over, and there lying at his feet was a woman. So he asked, who are you? I am Ruth, your servant, she replied. Take me under your wing, for you are a family redeemer. Then he said, may the Lord bless you, my daughter. You have shown more kindness now than before, because you have not pursued younger men, whether rich or poor. Now don't be afraid, my daughter. I will do for you whatever you say, since all the people in my town know that you are a woman of noble character." Yes, it is true that I am a family redeemer, but there is a redeemer closer than I am. Stay here tonight and in the morning. If he wants to redeem you, that's good. Let him redeem you. But if he doesn't want to redeem you, as the Lord lives, I will. Now lie down until morning. This is God's word. You may be seated. So we come to our very first point in chapter 3 this morning, a redeemer requested. Let's pick it up in verse 1 with Naomi's ingenious plan. Verse 1 says, Ruth's mother-in-law said to her, My daughter, shouldn't I find rest for you so that you will be taken care of? Now isn't Boaz our relative? Haven't you been working with his female servants? At least for me, on the initial reading, I couldn't help but think, is Naomi trying to force her plan apart from the Lord? Like, hasn't she seen over and over and over that God is providing for her? Is she trying to just kind of make it her way without seeking the Lord in this? Yet the more I read and the more I studied the passage, it doesn't seem like that's the question that we should be asking. You see, the text reads, shouldn't I find rest for you so that here's the purpose statement that you will be taken care of. This was Naomi's prayer for her and Ruth when she stopped her and Orpah on the way to Judah. Naomi's purpose for her plot was her daughter-in-law's well-being. She isn't thinking about herself. She's starting to display the hesed kindness that she is so evidently seen displayed in Ruth and Boaz. All right, so what's her plan? What all centers on Boaz, the man who is one of the family redeemers, a man that can provide both protection, provision, and ultimately a child to carry on the inheritance of the family. So the plan centers on Boaz, who Naomi says this evening will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. So Naomi urges Ruth to approach Boaz in a place that she knows he will be in a good mood. This is the place where the grain was tossed in the air, and it was tossed in the air at night because the breeze would come in. So when they would toss it up, the chaff would be blown away, and the grain would fall to the floor. So think about this with me for a second. Boaz would be surrounded by all of God's provisions that he had been providing for this past six months. And Boaz should certainly be in a good mood as he sleeps on the threshing floor, protecting his grain from thieves and wild animals. And so Naomi goes on in verse 3 to give Ruth some directions about what she should do prior to arriving and what she should do when she arrives on the threshing floor. Naomi, she is certainly scheming here. She says, step one, take a bath. 
Step two, put on some perfume. This is what she's saying. Don't smell like those wild animals that Boaz is protecting his grain from. That's key. Don't forget that step. And then, then she says, step three, wear your best clothes. Now, Naomi may be saying, put on a nice dress, but it seems kind of odd that she's going in the pitch black dark. Upon further reading, I think she's advising Ruth to end her period of mourning. This very well may be the reason that Boaz hasn't approached her in the first place, because her clothes signal that she's still mourning the loss of her husband. Naomi right here might be giving her a little push saying, all right, Ruth, you just got to get on with your life. So she advises her continuing in verse three. When you get there, don't let him know you're there until he has finished eating and drinking. You don't want to approach Boaz when he's hangry. That is not wise at all. And then she goes on in verse 4 to give advice. And this is probably my favorite advice that she gives him. When he lies down, notice where he's lying. I've heard horror stories of like husbands and wives that are at a party. And the husband like goes to hug his, what he thinks is his wife from behind. Only to find out that was not his wife. That's a tough scene right there. And Naomi is saying, do not make that mistake at all. Without a shadow of a doubt, know where Boaz is lying. Lastly, Ruth is told to uncover his feet. Now, this is obviously the strangest request. But I don't think we should read too much into it. The author over and over extols Ruth and Naomi for their character. This was certainly odd. But it was not immoral. It was probably just to get his attention. The cold air on his feet kind of acts similarly to an alarm clock. Both cause you to wake up furiously. And so we'll see in verse 9, this gesture also probably signaled a proposal. So in summary, Naomi's plan was both countercultural and a massive gamble. The countercultural part is pretty obvious. In the ancient Near East, similar to today, women did not propose to men. Yet the gamble aspect might not seem as obvious to us. Think about this with me, because I think it really sets the scene for Ruth's arrival in verse 6. The potential for disaster is pretty high. Although Naomi's plan is incredibly comprehensive, still a lot could go wrong. Boaz could easily respond in a negative way. He could per perceive Ruth's gesture to be a sexual one demanding her to leave. He could just outright reject her proposal. Or he could wake up frustrated because simply someone just woke him up in the middle of the night. Whatever happened, I think that both Ruth and Naomi knew that Yahweh was in control and he was working out everything for their good. That's why I'm not convinced that they acted flippantly apart from the Lord. Hear me out, though. I'm certainly not advocating for our single ladies to walk away saying, if he won't propose, I will. Please don't hear me say that. I'm not saying that at all. Yet I do think that there's an application for us to actually make choices. Listen, making choices is not antithetical to trusting God's plan for our lives. Kev Kevin DeYoung helpfully said this. God expects and encourages us to make choices. Confident that he has already determined how to fit our choices in his sovereign will. 
I think this confidence in how God is already determined to fit our choices in his sovereign will is the key truth that Naomi and Ruth understood that we as Christians tend to forget, which starts to lead us into indecision and passivity. Naomi was not calling Ruth to sin. She was calling her to act. Yes, act in an odd manner, but act and trust God's good providence for her life. We might do well to walk in those footsteps. All right, so let's pick it up in verse 8, where we see Ruth follow Naomi's instructions to a T, except for one minor part. Verse 8 starts out, At midnight, Boaz was startled, turned over, and there lying at his feet was a woman. So he asked, Who are you? I am Ruth, your servant, she replied. Take me under your wing, for you are a family redeemer. Naomi's plan is happening accordingly until the moment Boaz wakes up. You see, Ruth was instructed to wait for Boaz's direction. She wasn't supposed to say anything until Boaz spoke. Nevertheless, she comes right through the front door to state what her intentions were. A proposal, do what you're qualified to do. Take me under your wings. I want to pause and let's not forget this is Ruth, right? This is a Moabite. This is a foreigner, a widow, a servant, uninvited and making demands of her boss to marry her. I mean, I think we just pause and sit here and think, how? Why? Well, in departing from Naomi's script, we see the reason of how and why she's taken this seemingly hopeless gamble. Her aim was to benefit Naomi, providing her with an heir to continue on Elimelech's name and inheritance. And Boaz realizes this. He realizes this unbelievable kindness cloaked in boldness when he responds in verse 10. That breaks all the tension that we're feeling at this moment. Boaz says, may the Lord bless you, my daughter. You have shown more kindness now than before because you have not pursued younger men whether rich or poor. Boaz starts off by saying, may the Lord bless you. He is saying this. He is saying Ruth's obedience actually deserves a reward. Boaz is saying, since you have showed Hesed kindness to your mother-in-law in such a magnificent way, may the Lord reward you or repay you for your actions. Thomas Schreiner, a theologian, helpfully said this, He said, Ruth did not earn or merit a reward. No, because she trusted in Yahweh, she took refuge under his wings. All those who trust in Yahweh are rewarded for looking to him as their God and king. And this is a great theme in the book of Ruth. Reward or blessing comes by trusting in Yahweh revealed through actions like this one. We saw in chapter 2 of verse 12, Boaz said to Ruth, Something very similar. May the Lord reward you for what you have done. And we saw that the Lord did reward Ruth and Naomi with both protection and provision. Yet Boaz saying this again has to call us to think that greater wages might be coming her way. Maybe there will be a child that will come. And so I want to say this. I want us to be careful not to think that Ruth's motivation was her reward. Or that our reward for trusting Yahweh is always earthly things like marriage and a family. 
You see, Ruth totally committed herself to Yahweh, taking refuge under his wings. And the Lord rewarded her with protection, provision, and ultimately an offspring. Her end was God, yet through that, God rewarded her. But what, Ruth, or what God gave Ruth is descriptive. It isn't promised to us. What is promised to us is that we will have more of God and we can lay up treasures in heaven. Yet I wonder if there are both single men and single ladies in this room that desire to get married. Yet that good desire over time might look like, God, why haven't you provided? What more can I do for you? You see, desiring a husband or a wife is a great thing. Yet if your motivation for serving God is the husband or the wife, then that desire has creeped into a really dangerous place. And we should repent of that. God will never be put into our debt. Our motivation to serve God should be God, a deeper relationship with him. All right, so Boaz continues in verse 10, saying that Ruth has shown even more kindness than before. He implies that Ruth's devotion here is even more impressive than her initial devotion to Naomi in chapter 1. Well, why is that? Well, because she could have easily married for passion or love, which would have been younger men, or she could have hitched her wagon to a richer man, which showed that she was marrying for greed. But she doesn't do any of that. She rejects passion and greed to choose family loyalty. She isn't thinking about her own interests. No, she's thinking about the interest of Naomi. I think thinking about Ruth and the way that she's putting Naomi's needs before her, it might start to cause us to think about Philippians 2, right? Where we see someone not looking out for their own interests, but somebody who sticks their neck out for others. That's Jesus. Ruth's Hesed kindness is clearly pointing forward to the Hesed kindness of Jesus Christ, who did not count equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptying himself by taking on the form of a servant, being found in the likeness of humanity. Kelsey and I really every night read this storybook Bible to Henry. And every single night, Henry asked us to see the part where Jesus wears the purple robe. He always says, Dada, turn it to the part where Jesus wears the purple robe. And when I turn it there, every single time I tell Henry, Jesus is wearing the purple robe because his people are mocking him. Jesus is wearing the purple robe because his people are making fun of him. But every single time I turn there, I tell Henry, Jesus is wearing the purple robe as they're mocking him, as they're making fun of him, but he's voluntarily doing it because he's going to die for those people. That's amazing Hesed kindness. And Christ Fellowship, I pray that we would radiate that Hesed kindness, that love to one another. See Ruth's example in the way that she pursued Naomi's interests way before her own. Look to Jesus who showed perfect Hesed kindness to enemies like you and like me. I pray that we would look out on the interest of our fellow brothers and sisters even more than our own. And I do want to say this. I have so much experienced that from you guys for being here for this past seven days. I've experienced that day in and day out from being in y'all's homes and y'all caring for me so 
well. And I praise God, y'all are doing that, and I want us to continue even more. I do want to say, and they might get mad for me for saying this, but the Ropers have showed me such a beautiful picture of Christ Jesus and that Hesed kindness. And they have really stopped their lives to look out not only on their own interests, but my interests. And it has so stirred my affections for Christ and given me a great example of what Ruth and ultimately Jesus looks like right here. And so I'm so thankful for that. All right, so Boaz continues his dialogue with Ruth when he says in verse 11, Now don't be afraid, my daughter. I will do for you whatever you say, since all the people in my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Boaz gives the reason why he accepts Ruth's proposal, because she is a noble woman and everyone knows it. I think we can point out two unbelievable things in verse 11. Number one, Boaz says yes, which means Ruth is going to have to say yes to a dress. They're getting married. <laughs> That's just a joke. And secondly, Ruth the, Mo Ruth the Moabite has been in Bethlehem for just a couple of weeks. Yet Boaz can confidently say that everyone knows she is a woman of noble character. Listen, she did not get this reputation by hanging around people of high society. No, the lonely, humble Moabite servant showed hasid kindness and loyalty to her family, and everyone took notice of it. I pray that we, Christ Fellowship, would have this same reputation in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, and ultimately in the city of Williamsburg. So if you were with us a few months ago, I said that every single Hallmark movie has some type of complication that we literally never saw coming. Well, verse 12 introduces this complication. And so Boaz prefaces his yes with, but hold up, I have something to tell you first. Boaz, the open and honest man that he is, says in verse 12, Yes, it is true that I am a family redeemer, but there is a redeemer closer than I am. Stay here tonight. And in the morning, if he wants to redeem you, that's good. Let him redeem you. But if he doesn't want to redeem you, as the Lord lives, I will. Now lie down until morning. The drama to the story builds. You see, in the pecking order, Boaz does not come first. There's another man closer to Naomi's family. I love Boaz's integrity here. He's always caring. He's protective. He's forthright. And he tells Ruth exactly how it is. He promises he'll do everything that she requested if he's able to do it. Now he tells her to lie down until the morning. Yet I'm assuming with this new wrinkle, they probably did not get a ton of sleep especially Ruth, since Boaz's feet was her pillow. They definitely didn't sleep long because we read in verse 14 that it was still dark when she left. Boaz, being the man that he is, sends Ruth home with some food for his mother-in-law. And we finish the chapter 3 like we finished chapter 2 with some girl talk between Ruth and Naomi. At the end of chapter 3, we hear Ruth's last words of the account. Sadly, she doesn't make an appearance in chapter 4. And so Ruth says in 17, her very last words, He gave me these six measures of barley because he said, Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. This gift was more than just provision for their family. It was a down payment at, for a marriage. And I want you to pay close attention to this. Na Naomi, the bitter woman that we saw in chapter 1 who came back to Bethlehem begrudgingly with her Moabite daughter-in-law is hearing about God's provision through Ruth right before her very eyes. 
She could have never even fathomed at the beginning of the story that Ruth would be the one by which God uses to bring protection, provision, and ultimately a child. Yet it was through Ruth's faithfulness that God used her in a mighty way. And I want to point this out as Ruth exits the account. The world perceived her as literally nothing. Yet through her faithfulness, God used her mightily for his glory. You might say to yourself all the time, well, I don't have a speaking ability like this man. Or you might think to yourself, you know, I can't evangelize like this woman. Or some of y'all might say to yourself, you know, I'm just not as hospitable as this couple. You see, I praise God for those gifts. Yet Ruth's example proves that God delights to use those that are faithful. You see, Jackie Hill Perry once tweeted, and I, I love this. Let's not confuse giftedness for godliness. It was Ruth's godliness was the means by which the Lord brought Naomi's fullness. And it will be a means by which the Lord uses us for his glory. God does not make mistakes with us. He has saved us and he has gifted every one of us. Let's stay faithful and God will use us. So Ruth requested a redeemer and Boaz gladly accepted. Yet we learn about a man who's closer to Naomi's family, a man that has the right to redeem ahead of Boaz. And Naomi ends chapter three with the words, my daughter, wait until you find out how things go, for he won't rest and he, until he resolves this today. Boaz is on a mission, yet the big question left hanging in the air is, how will this end? So this brings us to our very last point in our very last chapter of Ruth, and we come to a redeemer received. So we see in chapter 4, a redeemer received. If you think we saw drama in the last chapter, chapter 4 will have you pacing around like a good thriller movie. The scene begins with Boaz going to the city gate, a place where the citizens do business. I love this scene. Boaz comes to the gate. He sits down, communicating all that he's ready to conduct business. A determined man, driven by desire and duty on a mission to redeem. I don't want us to get ahead of the curve here, but does Boaz not remind you of Jesus at this moment? Here's a man voluntarily going to redeem Naomi, a determined to do whatever he can at whatever cost so that Naomi and Ruth will be secure. I can't help but think of Jesus in Matthew 10, where he was in Mark 10, where he was walking towards Jerusalem ahead of the apostles and his followers who were lagging behind in fear. Why were they lagging behind in fear? Because they knew what Jesus knew. Jerusalem equals his death. Yet we see Jesus head towards Jerusalem, ready to do whatever he can so that he can secure his people voluntarily going to the cross. Yet unlike Jesus, Boaz isn't going to have to die, which is kind of a spoiler alert. Yet there will be some sacrifice if he will be the one who will redeem. So he's at the gate, and lo and behold, the unnamed redeemer steps up, and Boaz calls him over and says, all right, let's conduct business, which causes us to pick it up in verse 2, when Boaz says, then Boaz took 10 of men of the town elders and said, sit here. And they sat down. He said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has returned from the territory of Moab, is selling the portion of the field that belonged to our brother Elimelech. We have this boardroom-like meeting going on. It's Boaz, the unnamed redeemer, and 10 of the town elders who are here. 
And we have in our translation, Boaz is saying that Naomi is selling a portion of the field. Yet I do want to say this is kind of confusing for us. According to the Mosaic law, the inheritance that each family was given by God after crossing the Jordan was not supposed to leave their family. The land was supposed to remain in their family according to Leviticus 25. That is why Boaz says, our brother. This is one of our family members whose inheritance is supposed to remain within the family by a redeemer like you or me. The misleading part about the translation is that Naomi, being a widow, did not have the authority to sell the land. That's why she needs a redeemer, because the loss of a husband meant the loss of protection and provision. So Naomi wasn't selling the land. Well, what was she doing? Well, it seems like when they left Moab, the land fell into someone else's hands. Now, being her land, she would be able to reclaim it if she had money to do so. Yet upon returning, remember, she had no money. Now, Boaz makes the argument that the Redeemer must go and purchase the land back from whoever's using it at the time. And Boaz also understands, and I don't want us to miss this, that in some ways Ruth is tied to the land because Ruth's desire is for Naomi's inheritance to come back to the family. So Boaz light, rightly grasps that gaining the right to the land was gaining the right to Ruth's hand in marriage. So Boaz, in verse 4, lays out everything for this man. He's upfront, honest, and he's very articulate. And we hear at the end of verse 4 the words... I want to redeem it. It's like everything inside of us is feeling, no, this unmanned redeemer, he can't redeem the land. He can't redeem Naomi and Mary Ruth. That would ruin the whole Hallmark story. How can he do this? Well, Boaz, the man that he is, he's got one more trick up his sleeve. He's got one more bullet in the chamber. And so this is what he does when he, in verse 5. He says this, On the day when you buy the field from Naomi, you will acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the deceased man, to perpetuate the man's name on the property. Boaz ultimately explains to this man that in buying the piece of the property, it will just end up in Naomi's family. The man quickly changes his mind in verse 6, saying, I can't redeem it myself. I will lose my inheritance. Why does he say that he would lose his own inheritance? Well, it seems like his end is his well-being. He doesn't want to purchase a piece of property that will, in fact, just end up in Naomi's family's hands. The deal sounded sweet until there was a point of sacrifice, and so this man gets out of it, and after this new clause, he says, take my right of redemption because I can't redeem it. There it is. The Hallmark story continues. There is going to be a happy ending. Boaz is the redeemer. The business has come to a close. The deal has done. And we read in verses 7 through 8 about the custom of the time to ratify the deal. There is no paperwork involved per se, but a sandal was given from one party to the other, legally binding the transaction. The unnamed redeemer, he handed over his Jerusalem cruisers, and the deal was done. Boaz was Naomi's redeemer, and Ruth finally found what Naomi so desired, rest in the house of a husband. 
before Boaz left the gate, the elders of the city pronounced a type of blessing on him and Ruth in verses 11 through 12. We see this phrase, may the Lord make or may the house become. This might cause us to think of Psalm 127.1. Unless the Lord builds a house, its labors build in vain. The elders of the town knew that Boaz's desire was to perpetuate Elimelech's property. Yet they skillfully remind Boaz and everyone seated around that it's only by the sovereign hand of God that these things might come about. And the Lord, he surely brought it about, which we read about in verse 13 when the author says this. Look at me. Look with me in the text. Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. He slept with her and the Lord granted conception to her. And she gave birth to a son. Remember, Ruth had been married for 10 years to Malin. And they could not conceive children. And the author right here wants us to remember that it's only by God's gracious hand who opens up the womb. And he certainly opened up the womb and gave them a child. And through this child, Naomi's life has been restored. Her family's inheritance is not lost. So look with me at verse 16, because we see such a sweet picture at the end of this book. Naomi took the child, placed him on her lap, and became a mother to him. The bitterness and emptiness that plagued her at the beginning of the story has been wiped away. She now sits full because of how God has restored her life through Boaz the Redeemer and her daughter-in-law, Ruth. A Redeemer has been received. What an incredible turn of events. The story, though, doesn't end here. Remember my introduction? It's kind of like the Lego movie. And this is where I will conclude. You might have picked up on this because I certainly have hinted at it. Yet this story acts as a microcosm, not only to Israel, but ultimately to the whole world. And we really don't know this at first, but the author throughout the whole book kind of is slowly unveiling this until that at the very end, he gives us this genealogy showing there was so much more going on to the story. And we really see that at the very end. The story of Ruth acts as a microcosm that reveals God working behind the scenes, that he hasn't abandoned his people. Remember, the story takes place during the time of the judges when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And what is God doing? Israel needed a king. They needed a king after God's own heart to lead them into righteousness. And we see in the story that God is doing that very thing. Look with me at verse 17. And they named him Obed, and he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This was no ordinary child, for the child born to Ruth was ultimately a part of the royal line of David. God had not abandoned his people. He was working behind the scenes to provide them a king that they did not even know they needed, nor they, did they ask for it. Yet God knew, and God was working, and God was providing. Yet this story foreshadows not only how he provided for Israel, Yet this story foreshadows how God has provided for the whole world. You see, there needed to be a greater David that will come through Ruth's line. And we see that in Matthew 1, where Ruth is named in, gene in um, Jesus' genealogy. 
Yes, he comes through Ruth's line, but let's ask the question right now, how will he provide for the whole world? Well, he's going to bring his people out of idolatry. He's going to bring fullness where there was emptiness, and ultimately he will reward his people. Yet the book of Ruth teaches us that apart from a redeemer, there is no fullness. Apart from a redeemer, there is no restoration. And apart from a redeemer, listen to me, there is no reward. A redeemer had to come to do what Naomi could not do. What does that show? Her inability. She couldn't do for herself what she needed most. And God had to provide for her. What is this showing for us? This is foreshadowing our inability before God that we cannot do what we need the most, obtain righteousness and complete forgiveness. But what did God do? Oh, he was working behind the scenes in the book of Ruth. He was working all throughout the Old Testament to ultimately unveil his son. His son, Jesus Christ, coming through the line of Ruth, who lived the life that we could not live, who was obedient to his father every single second of every single day. He obtained righteousness, and that righteousness led him to the cross where he died, where he took our guilt, our sin laid on his shoulders, that everyone that repents and believes is cleansed, is forgiven. He obtained the righteousness. He obtained the forgiveness. And it's only by our trust in him that we're saved. It's only by us clinging to Redeemer that we will be with God. And I do want to say this for those in here that might consider themselves non-Christians, that you kind of wandered in here. I'm so thankful that you're here. I'm thankful, we're all thankful, that you chose Sunday to come be with us. But I wonder if you've ever thought about your inability towards God. I wonder if you've ever thought about you going before God and needing perfect righteousness and complete forgiveness. Friend, I want to tell you, that you can have that righteousness, that you can have that forgiveness, that today is the day of salvation if you repent and believe in Jesus. I know every single member of Christ Fellowship would love to talk to you about what it means to know the gospel and how you can be saved even today. Well, Christ Fellowship, remember the book of Ruth. That God has provided for us a redeemer and, it, and we clearly perceive the patterns that he is working behind the scenes. He has not and will not abandon his people like you and me. So what do we do? We trust him. Let's trust God knowing that he has provided and he continue to provide for us. Let's pray.